Hi there, and welcome to Maxed Out. My name is Max Fawcett. I'm the lead columnist for Canada's National Observer, and my first appearance on national television involved me defending smoking on the George Strabolopoulos show. I'm very thankful that Twitter didn't exist back then. This podcast is about having constructive conversations about public policy issues with people I might or do disagree with. I want to step outside my silos, and I want to encourage other people to step outside of theirs. Today is the politics of pandemics. And just a reminder that we need your help to continue all of our podcasts. Every donation helps, and please rate us a five on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. We want everyone to find us. I've long wanted to have someone on the podcast to talk about the pandemic and the issues that shaped our collective response to it. And while it might have been fun to have someone to talk to who was associated with the Freedom Convoy, this is going to be a much more sophisticated and I think productive conversation. I will disclose my my bias here at the outset. For as long as I've been a rational adult, I mean, that could be months, depending on who you ask, but I've been very skeptical of libertarianism as a political philosophy. Now, this is partially because I was raised by parents who believed in the capacity and purpose of government. Parents who, yes, named me after a Marxist poet. But it's also because, quote, somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive, he said. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you've got a business, you didn't build that. Now, his critics seized on that last line, and I can hardly blame them for it, given what an easy target it offered up. But I think his underlying point was fundamentally sound. There's a quote that's always kind of stuck in my head, and it it goes like this. Libertarians are like house cats, absolutely convinced of their fierce independence, while utterly dependent on a system they don't appreciate or understand. My suspicion of libertarianism and libertarians was largely borne out during the pandemic. After those first few weeks at the outset where we banged our pots and pans for medical professionals, we kept our distance from each other, people started behaving more and more like house cats. They increasingly rejected the idea of protecting other people. They became invested in their own heroic resistance to things like vaccinations and masking mandates, and they turned a shared public health crisis into a personal journey of resistance. This all culminated, of course, with last year's Freedom Convoy and the occupation of Ottawa, and we're still contending with the fallout from that today. I suspect some people will spend the rest of their lives trying to relive and relitigate that moment. But I was drawn to Janet Bufton on this issue because of a piece she wrote back in November for The Hub, which, if you don't know, might be the last bastion of genuinely sensible and smart, small-c conservative commentary and analysis of public policy. Her piece was called, The Pandemic Shows We Expect Too Much of Governments and Too Little of Ourselves. And it made for some interesting arguments that I want to explore today. When she's not writing these interesting pieces, Janet is an educational consultant and the co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Studies. That's a registered educational charity that's dedicated to encouraging the discussion of classical liberal ideas in Canada. Janet, welcome to Maxed Out. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So in your piece for The Hub, you wrote that, quote, it's been a disappointing time to be a libertarian. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so help me. I'm still a libertarian. It wasn't a time when we all had to like go out into the woods and sit on a pile of gold with our guns, which is like the cartoon libertarian. It was a collective action problem, right? It was not a individual problem. And I don't know 
how much like grocery shopping you did right at the beginning of the pandemic when it was super, super weird. But like, I would go in and I would just feel like this well of thanks for the people who were working in the grocery stores. And like, of course, healthcare workers, first responders and people like that. I saw this, the, this capacity that we had to do stuff together. Within libertarianism, the pandemic was a very polarizing issue within the movement, the ideology. Um, I remember really early on picking up the Western standard and they had something on the fact that there's like no such thing as germs anyways. And what we all have to do is eat fermented food. And I was like, wow, you just wait until Southeast Asia finds out about fermented vegetables. Um, <laughs> they're going to be all set. We defend your ability to be a misfit. In some cases, that ends up attracting people who don't believe that there's therefore any reason that we need to work together. But there's another kind of libertarian, and that's this is where I'd put myself, who I believe that like ordinary people with the, un, living under the right institutions and rules can do really, really extraordinary things. I am more skeptical of the claim that extraordinary people, given sufficient power, are what make extraordinary things happen. And so that's why at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like really optimistic about how things could go. And by the time I wrote that piece, I was really pessimistic because at the time, I have two young girls, uh, one is three and a half and one is 10 months old. And so they have every virus and I've had every virus. And I was like, just put on a mask. Like we're gonna put on masks when we go out because we get enough stuff from daycare basically. And we learned during the pandemic that regular masks will stop colds and the flu, for instance. And people were just like getting really angry at the idea that you might wanna put a mask on if you have the flu and you need to go to the grocery store. So that by that point, I was very pessimistic about the idea that we would step up and work together. And I think that that's what libertarianism really requires us to do. And that's actually just what a free society requires us to do. I was doing all the grocery shopping in those first few weeks, and I'm with you on that. It was it was terrifying, but it was also weirdly inspiring because you kind of would trade these glances with people at the grocery store, you know, from your distance behind your mask. But it would sort of be this like, wow, we're in this together, you know, like this is a moment in history and we're clearly sort of on this ship together and let's do our best. And then you would be very kind to the people who worked at the grocery store because obviously they weren't getting paid as much as they probably should have in that in that moment. And they were making things happen. It really it felt good in a weird way, even though it was obviously this awful thing that was happening to all of us. And then it kind of fell apart. Probably the thing that frustrates me the most is the masking conversation. Because, and I have a 16-month-old now. We we also get all the viruses. But you know, you saw this incredible flu season where no one got sick from the flu because everyone was wearing masks. And I and I remember thinking, oh, could we keep this? Like this seems like a thing that we could just keep doing for a while because it's nice and it produces mortality and makes people feel better. And and it became this this civil liberties issue that you know no one can tell me to to do something I don't want to do. You know, I think fair to say that the mask conversation is unretrievable at this point that you know we're not going to be able to salvage any of the good stuff there and i think that sort of made me think well there we go you know the libertarians in our midst are using it as an opportunity to resist being told what to do which is kind of how i've always seen libertarianism is it's it's an ideology that is kind of elegant cover for saying you can't make me do what i don't want to do and i'm intrigued by your idea that there is this other kind out there that is actually sort of socially responsible plugged into community and informed by a sense that we need to do this together how did you arrive at that that intellectual position and, and as someone who's an outsider to the community how common is it among libertarians if you are among academic libertarians so like an, a libertarian philosopher a libertarian economist then i think that this is the more common position 
if you were to find all of the people who call themselves a libertarian, then I think it's probably a minority position. How did I get there? I mean, my parents are very, very conservative people, and I'm not anymore, but I was when I was like really young. When I was in grade 11, I think, 9-11 happened, and uh, we had to write a essay in English class about discriminating against people at the airport by like looking at them and saying, well, you're a Muslim and so you must be a, a problem. I might have actually been traveling on an airplane for the first time in October 2001, which was a trip. Oh, and wow. um, <laughs> and while I was traveling, I, rem I know because I just found this essay, I saw uh, a Muslim family traveling and there was like a little kid and he was like making faces at me. It was really cute. And I like went on the trip intending to write this like defense of discriminating at the airport. And then I was like, this is wrong. This isn't what I believe. And then I went through a phase of being in my 20s. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I was like very much like shock people and try and get them to like change their mind just by sheer force of will. No, I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, or outside of Windsor, Ontario, in the county. Uh, so I grew up around a lot of farmers. When we moved closer to the city, most of my friends, their dads were like auto workers or they worked in shops. I remember graduating with people whose plan it was to go work at the Chrysler plant. And I think actually you've mentioned being in Alberta, like people would just go work in the oil patch, right? It was a really good job right out of school, especially in Windsor, where the, the housing market was like depressed for a long time. You could finish high school, go work at a plant, save up for a couple of years, buy a house, get married, have kids. The barrier of post-secondary education is like a real one. And I think that it was just dumb luck, basically, that got me the views uh, that I have. It's an interesting perspective for me because it just strikes me as being much more optimistic and empathetic than I'm accustomed to hearing libertarians. And maybe I'm just listening to the non-academic ones on Twitter too much, but this idea that what you want is not to be left alone, which I find is is often the argument, but that you want people to do the right thing without being forced to do the right thing. Is that a, is that a fair representation? We always want to like reduce the amount of force or coercion that people live under then the more things we can do voluntarily, the better off we are. This is like sort of my opinion. And then I just have a very optimistic view of people, which I recognize is like a, a bias and I can be proven wrong. But I, I, I really do think people are generally good. Like every single time there's a crisis and people are like, wow, look at these amazing people. And I'm like, those are just people in amazing circumstances. To me, like people are generally good. Like I I'm going to teach my kids that you can ask a stranger for help because most strangers are good. I'm going to teach them also how to keep themselves safe. But like my general view of people is a positive one. And I think it's actually like a beautiful thing about a liberal society that you can be super, super weird and it's fine because lots of people are weird in harmless ways. And I think that that's a lot of how we discover stuff. And so like that's kind of where my belief that we should have like a lot of latitude on what we're allowed to do comes from that definitely falls apart in a situation like a pandemic. The interesting thing, though, is whenever um, the Ebola crisis happened, where they had a couple of cases in the U.S., Reason Magazine, which is a very libertarian magazine, had a some sort of podcast or something where they were talking about the fact that, like, you can infringe on people's liberties to keep everyone safe. So if, like, you had airborne Ebo Ebola, you can force people to be vaccinated. You can force people to quarantine. These are things that you can do in a free society. But it's a very libertarian position that you can use the government in like these like lifeboat scenarios. Let me give you uh, a magic wand that gives you presidential powers. And we go back to March 2020. 
what would you do differently knowing what you know now about how the pandemic unfolded to prevent the kind of politicization of public health and the kind of taking of sides that we saw around things like masks? How could we have done this differently? Or was this sort of always the inevitable outcome just based on the way our society is kind of wired and constituted? I don't think it was inevitable. I do think that this is like a fun exercise, but it's also cheating because knowing what we know now is like very, very useful, right? Um, knowing that we would have a vaccine within a year, which was like a miracle. And also knowing that we know now that mass gatherings were very dangerous, that masks are very, very effective, especially with early variants of COVID. Obviously Omicron changed everything. I think that it was a very, very difficult time to be a policymaker I am less sympathetic to politicians than I am to grocery store clerks, um, but I don't envy them early in the pandemic. I have a lot of friends who think it's very obvious that no lockdown was ever necessary. I'm not sure that was necessarily the case, but like, so, okay, let's just accept the first lockdown. And that we see from that lockdown that not interacting with each other does a lot of stuff. It does slow virus spread. We know that it is really bad for the economy. Do you remember that a bunch of Dorito flavors disappeared? And this is seen as like sort of a funny thing when I bring it up, but I don't think it's funny because the market that can provide us with like Doritos is the same market that provides us with like medicine and like fresh fruit in the winter. I remember the toilet paper hoarding and I was like, that's crazy. Come on. You know, markets work, supply chains work. I'm not going to hoard toilet paper. And then I went and looked at the shelves and they were almost out of toilet paper. And I was like, I got to get some. It was like my reptile brain was taking over my rational brain. There was enough toilet paper, but it was all in the wrong place. To the extent that I would have like been not that upset with the government response. I would have really liked to see incentivization to come up with pharmaceuticals and vaccines, not because I'm like super upset about the idea that China could have made our vaccines or whatever. I don't care who makes the vaccines. I want the vaccines. So I think Trudeau gets a little bit more flack than he deserves for wanting to have a domestic supply. But like putting all the eggs in one basket was not the thing to do. In with hindsight, it turns out that paying as much as we could have afforded for whatever vaccine worked was a good strategy. But like, I would have liked to see scaling up of masks because it turned out that those were like very important. I would have liked to see a lot more testing uh, because in other countries, they were doing sufficient testing to like stop transmission chains, right? Um, and we never, ever, ever got to that point. And there was no interest in there. There was this horrifying time because I'm in Ontario where like Doug Ford was telling people to get together with their families and stuff. And I was like, no, no, this is <laughs> and like it, it was unclear if Doug Ford was basically going to take the Trump route. Like it was really unclear. Right. He didn't. Um, and while I'm not a fan of his response, it could have been worse. I would have liked to see a study and make vaccines instead of like trying to pick and choose specific firms just say like, we're going to make it really, really easy for you to study and do vaccines here. All of this is stuff that I would have been like, okay, not my favorite thing ever, but like not the hill I'm going to die on either, especially right now. I wish that I could tell you where it went so wrong. Yeah, it would be easier if there was sort of a, a clearly identifiable policy error or mistake that we could then avoid in the future. I wonder how optimistic are you about our ability to weather another pandemic? I've been reading these stories that keep coming out about bird flu and it's transmitting into mink and mink are mammals and they can potentially transmit it to us. And there's scientists who are kind of nervous about it. And to me, it seems like there's a sizable chunk of the population that's now primed because of the last few years and social media and whatever to kind of ignore or resist any mutual self-preservation. And ironically, this means that we would need even heavier-handed actions from the government if we actually had another pandemic. What, what do you think about that? 
I don't know. It, it depends how bad it is, right? And I don't want it to be true that it has to be really awful before we care. But it seems like that might be the case right now. And then the, the question is, do you make it worse by having a heavy, heavy hand? So like vaccine mandates, forget COVID, vaccine mandates generally, right? Because we were having resurgences of measles and stuff like that before all of this. I see the argument for vaccine mandates, but my, my opposition to vaccine mandates is mostly practical. What I've been convinced of with vaccine mandates is that you can get more people to get vaccinated in the short term, but in the long term, you encourage vaccine hesitancy. And so like, that's a, that's a big problem to me. And I can't remember who it was. It was an academic, but she put her purse down at the beginning of the lecture, not like a wait. She put it on a desk and she drew attention to it. And she said like, nobody even thought about taking my purse. And I didn't even think about whether or not it was safe to leave it there. And that's something that you all take for granted, but not everybody can. And it's true. There's an enormous amount of social trust that allows us to live any dense, large settlement won't work if just trust and social norms between strangers breaks down. And when it does really break down, that's when you see cities deteriorating. And one example of this is actually the convoy, right? Like one of the many ways in which I've been purged from the libertarian movement over the past two years is when I wrote a, <laughs> I wrote a piece critical of the convoy. And like my big criticism with them is that in Ottawa, there's a lot of respect for the right to protest, but that requires us to behave ourselves as though other people matter. We still can't drive up to Parliament Hill. I don't think we're ever going to be able, like, I'm really, I'm really upset about this because it was a really important symbolic difference between Canada and the U.S. that you could just wander right up to Parliament, even after the shooter in Ottawa. When I went to grad school uh, in Ottawa and, and went to Parliament for the first time, and I couldn't believe that you could just walk up there. You could sit on the grass, you could have a picnic, you could you could do all sorts of things. And then I worked on the hill and had a little window looking out over the, the main lawn and you'd see protests all the time and it was fine. It was some were more rambunctious than others, but it was all great. And yeah, I think you're right that the convoy, one of the, one of the things that it's done is it's sort of permanently taken away that innocence that used to surround our you know most important democratic building. People will say like, oh, libertarians and conservatives both care about tradition and they don't want to throw things out the, out the window. And this definitely seems true because I don't think that you should go in and like try to remake society from the ground up. And so like the conservative argument for not messing up institutions is that you don't mess with what works and like works for home. The reason that like if you're a committed liberal, you can't just throw everything out is that you believe that people are equal. And that I don't get to decide for you what we're going to do next. I have to persuade you to come along unless I'm willing to force you. I got really uppity listening to your first episode. I, I, I guess your listeners didn't feel like it was that spicy, but I was worked up. <laughs> because like, <laughs> if you like adopt a mentality where everything is war, the people who don't agree become the enemy. Yeah, This was true in fascist states. This is true in like the fascist movements that we see growing around the world right now. But it was also true in Stalinist Russia and also like the wars. We put a lot of people in camps for looking the wrong way or having the wrong sounding voice. That to me is what wars do. Yes, it also allows you to move forward as a society and accomplish a goal. I argue that we shouldn't want that because one of the great legacies of Canada all getting together and deciding what would be best for everyone is residential schools. If yeah. that's not bad enough for you, I don't know what it has freedom now become an irreparably politicized concept? And what does that mean for libertarians like yourself and the, and the libertarian project as a whole? 
I don't want it to be true that freedom as a concept is irreparably politicized. I do think that we might see more people with my kind of beliefs talking about liberalism because the politicization of that is kind of going down as sort of common meaning of that changes. But I don't want to give up the word freedom because there's something about it that it hits you. You can read Frederick Douglass, you can read Martin Luther King Jr., right? And they're talking about freedom because there's something about that word that people have latched onto. I was thinking of them as separate, but it's related. This is why it's so politicized is because it really does hit you. And it got people in the world fighting for their freedom to exist and to live the way that they want to live, like in Iran and Ukraine. I'm still optimistic. I just wish I was more. No, it's interesting. I mean, on both sides, there's this problem because freedom, liberty, great words. Now, progressives get very sort of anxious about it. And then progress, progressive, like that's a great word. It, it's something that everyone should want. And people on the right get sort of upset, triggered, whatever you want to call it by it. And we have these great words that neither side can really use. It does feel like it kind of boxes us in on on having a good conversation about what we really want. I feel like it's sad that describing what you believe opens you up for an insult. Shame is underrated because the alternative to shame is like force. I remember in high school, someone like talking about the fact that they had had a couple drinks and then driven home. And this most popular girl in the school was sitting by us and she was like, you are so unbelievably stupid. Why would you do something like that? And you just saw this guy like shrink, but I I wouldn't be surprised if he never drank, drank and drive again, if that wasn't like at the root of it. Shane is thinking not just that somebody else thinks badly of you, but that you think badly of yourself, right? It's like the worst feeling put on a mask. The only time now is when I've like already gone in somewhere and I know they're not going to be wearing a mask and I feel okay with not wearing a mask. But I'm just like, it would be really clumsy because we are clumsy when we're coming up with new norms. I'll say one more thing about like my kind of libertarianism that might be helpful. There was a movement called Students for Liberty. They had the t-shirt at one point that said, don't tread on anyone. I'm part of everyone. Don't tread on anyone. That is, I love the don't tread on anyone. I, I would, I might wear a shirt like that. I appreciate that sentiment. So I I think one of the problems with the pandemic and with social media is that it made us all way more certain about our opinions and our attitudes than we have any right to be. Because if you admit doubt or uncertainty on social media, you get killed for it, especially if you have a lot of followers. So one of the things I've sort of tried to start doing is owning up to things that I got wrong during the pandemic, because I got, I got some things wrong. And, and so I'm going to volunteer a thing that I got wrong here. And then maybe you can volunteer a thing you got wrong and we can kind of start the process that way. So I was wrong about, and this feeds into the whole libertarian conversation. I was wrong about the value of sticks. I was very pro stick, you know, certainly in 2021, 2022, I thought, you know, we just need to, to have these rules, have them enforced, bring down the hammer, enough coddling, enough trying to coerce people with words. We need to, to use the full weight of the state to protect people. I think maybe in the near term that works because people respond to force. But in the longer term, I think it's created the trust issue that you that you talked about, where people are just less trusting of the state and of anything that they are going to do than they would have been before this. And, and you sort of solve one problem and create two down the road. So that's my mea culpa. What is your COVID mea culpa? Oh man, there are so many. Really, really early on in the pandemic, there was like a factoid going around that like most viral pandemics kind of peter out because viruses tend to become more serious over time. And I really bought into that. I was like, okay, this can be really, really bad, but we just have to sort of weather the storm and we'll get through this and it'll get better. But of course, it's not even what happened. Smallpox was around forever. It always killed like a third of people who got it. It It's just mostly babies. 
if I was in charge of decisions, I would have made the wrong ones because of that. And I also say in my piece, I think I was wrong about how much we had an inherent drive to cooperate on this. Like I was just wrong about how badly broken things are politically and the fallout from that. And so like, I'm very uncertain on what I think we should do if there's another pandemic. It was just like every day so grateful that I didn't have to make that call. I think it was also too optimistic that people would see how awesome we can do with lifting the shackles a little bit from the uh, vaccine and pharmaceutical research, because I think we're too cautious about what we'll even let people try. Maybe it was a hope more than a belief, but I really hoped that people would see the value of letting more innovation happen more quickly that way. Maybe the faster research is just way too scary to people. Um, and maybe I'm wrong that it wouldn't become less scary as people see that you don't just drop dead every time you take something that was only studied for three years instead of 10. I'm really glad that I wasn't in charge because then we'd all know all of my <laughs> I think I think both of us are in the business to varying degrees of being right about things. And I think it's important to be able to admit when you're wrong. And it's hard in the culture that we're in right now because your wrongness is then inevitably sort of put on a receipt and thrown in your face every time. But I think if there's one of the, the lessons of the pandemic for me, it's we should be more willing to talk about our failures uh, than we are about our successes. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to me here. I want to thank you for introducing me to the idea of what I'm going to call progressive libertarianism. I may I may go looking for that shirt that you mentioned. Thank you for being such a, a wonderful guest on on my podcast here. Thanks so much for having me. I think this is such a cool project. I want to thank Janet Bufton again for joining me on the podcast and offering up such a thoughtful take on the libertarian mindset. One of the abiding features of libertarianism I've found in the past is an unwillingness or an inability to scrutinize its own core beliefs and the contradictions that often emerge from them. Janet has clearly done that, and I wish more of her fellow travelers would as well. After all, this tension between government and the private sector and between collective action and individual agency isn't going away anytime soon. It's one of the defining fulcrums of our political life, and it shapes the conversations we have about any number of subjects, from pandemic policies to gun control. I am, as you've probably guessed, more strongly in favor of approaches that emphasize or at least acknowledge our reliance on each other and the fact that individual achievement is always underwritten, at least to some extent, by the society in which it occurs. We would do well, I think, to focus more on reinforcing the foundations that support that society than tearing them down. But that's a conversation for another day. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. And if you think someone else should hear it, tell them. We want everyone to find us, even the libertarians. Maxed Out is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kazema. The executive editor of Canada's National Observer is Karen Puglesi. The publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. Next week is Hot Politics with David Mackay. And I'm Max Fawcett. I'll see you in two weeks.